0: Rapinoe flings it in from just past the midstripe. stripe goes up in the face of, you know, two fists coming at her, and she scored. For me, that is the greatest moment ever in the history of the U.S. women.
1: This is For the Love of the Game, hosted by old-school college soccer coaches Ralph Perez and Ray Reed. Between these two, you're listening to 81 years of coaching college athletes, Nearly 900 career wins, five national championships, and approximately 17,546 names in their contact lists. On this podcast, they grab some of those names and talk about what's going on in the soccer world today. Today, Ralph and Ray are talking with April Heinrichs. In her playing career, April was a two-time National Player of the Year for the University of North Carolina, where she played for the legendary Anson Dorrance. In 1991, she was captain of the U.S. Women's National Team when the United States won the World Cup, which she says is her greatest experience as a player. In this episode, they're talking about her career, her coaching style, and her advice for athletes currently experiencing the World Cup for the first time. Here they are, Ralph, Ray, and April.
2: Obviously, where I want to start this all off as, I think it was unbelievable that they decided FIFA to have a 1991 Women's World Cup. And I don't even think they called it a World Cup at that time. I just wondered if you could just turn the clock back a little bit, back to that team, that special group of players that you played with, and just kind of give people the opportunity to hear about how great the team was in 1991.
0: Yeah, thank you, Ralph. When I think back to 91, which is now 31 years ago, my my fondest memories of how, are how funny everyone was and how we took everything in stride and we just played off of each other like some sitcom. You know, with Anson's leadership, our mantra was adapt. Uh adapt, adapt, adapt. Like I I can't even say it in Anson's accent, but I probably could have said it in the 80s. Adapt, you know, and he would say that to us all the time. And so the way to adapt when you're traveling 38 hours to China with the left side of the plane being non-smoking and the right side of the plane being smoking, is you adapt, right? Uh, I can remember when we landed in Haiti for the qualifying, they arrived with a, let's describe it as a mini hotel van. And, you know, we had like 20 players and 10 staff and American luggage and no chance all that luggage was fitting in. So we as players started to stuff the luggage and pack it precisely in. And then when we came up like 10, 15 bags still sitting on the curb, the Haitians put it on top of the van and they had men laying on top of the bags. So the bags wouldn't fall off. So, you know, we kind of made fun of everything and in a politically correct way, In a nobody was safe, Anson was never safe from us in terms of how we, joked with him and pranks that we pulled on him and you know we won some games along the way we qualified for the world cup we won the world cup and um it wasn't called the fifa women's world cup initially they have since gone back and changed it was called the m&ms i think it was the fifa m&ms cup so who cares i don't care it's trophy it's a story
2: (laughs) i like (laughs) m&ms
0: yeah i like m&ms yeah
2: well one of the things that april that I think a lot of people, and obviously the one gentleman that came in and, and did a fantastic job of f- taking people from 1991 to present, a gentleman that you know that was the sports media guy and still the sports media guy uh, for the Women's World uh, Cup teams. Although I think he's attended every World Cup, uh, Aaron Heifetz. And, and Heifetz came in and did a talk. And I'd just like for you to talk about the nickname of Jennings, Karen Jennings, yourself, and Michelle Akers, because that 3 prong offensive thrust was probably one of the greatest of all time in women's soccer history.
0: So, you know, the tip of the sword was really Michelle Akers, and then Karen and I fed off of her. Um, And Karen, you know, while Michelle scored a, a ton of goals, Karen was voted the best player in the world. And I sort of limped my way through the World Cup. So my strength at the time was probably more leadership (laughs) than it was performance. So, yeah, it's kind of nice that the Chinese media nicknamed us. And again, 31 years later, we're still referring to the triple-edged sword. I'm just honored to be a part of it. And I look at Akers and, and Karen and the World Cups that they had. It was worthy of the recognition they got afterwards. I think about the types of players they are. We oneback was kind of the closest thing we had to to an Akers um, in the air, but not on the ground, you know, not in terms of some of the skill sets that Acres brought. And then I don't know that we've had a dribbler, maybe Tobin Heath, but different. She's different than Karen Cabrera was. You know, Karen was more like a hot knife through soft butter. She was... Whew, just slicing through uh, people and penetrating. Tobin sometimes dances on the ball, looks for the moment, and then either capitalizes um, or spins out and keeps possession because the game's more possession-oriented today. Right. So I think about those those players and how unique they were at the time. And and to be honest, how great the game is is that we actually haven't duplicated it. It's not like we're copy-pasting the same kind of player. Right. The nine is different today. Right. Wingers are different today.
3: April, you you have said in the past winning the World Cup unequivocally was the greatest experience as a player. Can you take the audience back and describe some of your favorite moments during the qualification or from the World Cup, the 1991
0: team? Well, as I've sort of alluded to, I think the memories of 30-hour train rides with no bathroom other than a hole in the floor are the things we remember the water being unsafe. So we boiled everything and then we put Kool-Aid in it to drink water for wow. a 30 hour train ride. Um, I can remember arriving at a hotel and we all just late at night and we packed in and it was, I think three to a room or some, some funky formula. The next thing you know, the one side of the hotel, some pipe had burst. So all the players from the opposite side of the hallway came knocking on our doors. And I had a teammate, uh, Megan McCarthy. She slept on the duffel bags because there wasn't more beds, right? They were all single beds. So she slept on duffel bags. And again, um, I think about how in Haiti during qualifying, we were trying to ingratiate ourselves with the host because we were kind of, there was a lot of goals being scored against opponents. And we wanted to be the favorite in the finals. We wanted to have some crowd support. So Somebody in our, in our contingent said, let's go buy some flowers. And during the national anthems, we held the flowers. And after the national anthem, our our idea was to jog across the field and flip these flowers over into the stands as, you know, an appreciation. They threw them right back. (laughs) No, no, no. We're not cheering for you guys. We're cheering for Mexico. So, you know, those kind of really funny moments and um, a lot of goals were being scored. Because of, I did some analysis for FIFA FIFA in 1990, or sorry, 2019, the last World Cup. FIFA asked me to do the technical study group analysis. I had a guy send me all the links to the 91 World Cup. And I watched those games for the first time ever. And, you know, it's a much faster game today. It's a much more technical game today. So that was fun to do. When you look at the way the game is played today and how organized defenses are and you look at how quick transition is, I had just recently that opportunity to go back and look at some of those games. We're probably not as good as we thought we were.
3: Obviously, you played for Anson in Carolina. Yep. I believe you're a two-time national player of the year. Tell me what made Anson, Anson, whether it be at Carolina with the women's national teams, what made him different? what made him successful uh, with his coaching, his psychology, his treatment of place?
0: Yeah. Well, I think he's above most in terms of his charismatic personality, his intellect, and he coaches with a lot of charisma. Uh, his his articulation and the way that he can explain or describe or ask or request, is, uh, his verbal skills are just, you know, Uh, Very difficult to even compare to most coaches. Um, Not that other coaches aren't smart or articulate or whatever, but it's, it's somewhat poetic sometimes the way that he speaks. It's always motivational. He tapped into how to coach women very early. And I really credit him for learning how to coach women because you don't just fall off the turnip truck and coach women. You don't come from the men's game and move over and coach women without making some mistakes. and he did he moved from the men's as you both know he moved from the men to the women's game and I don't remember a lot of mistakes being made to be honest I remember him being astute enough to to hear us so we had individual meetings all the time with him we had uh, team meetings where he would stand in front of the whiteboard or chalkboard at the time and ask a question and one of us would have to, then he would call, he'd cold call one of us and we'd have to come up and answer the question tactically in front of the whole group. I remember a lot of fun times that you just could not rattle Anson. Uh, You know, during a game, in between games, there's a lot of stories about us always being late to games because we were driving vans around. Anson had no qualms about showing up late to a game. The whole team showing up late for the game. First eleven players that arrived in that van, that first van, that's who's starting. So um, you combine all that with his over the years willingness to listen and learn and pull things from players. I think we always say to Anson, I felt like uh, we partnered with him. He made us better players and and we made him a better coach because he was such a good listener. He was so intuitive. If I've got acres on the field, yeah, I might play in the center of the midfield. Yeah, I'm not player center, center forward. <laughs> way closer to the goal, much more dangerous. You know, the prolific ability to score in the air. Um, that's listening to your players. That's not really saying, look, we're going to do it my way, and there's only one system. It's really um, his ability to listen and, and say, let's put April or April is best. I started off as a midfielder my freshman year at North Carolina, and I became a winger. So I think those are the kind of things that he learned watching us play.
2: I, I pride myself, April, on history and the history of my game. And I, I think I know better than most people about the women's game because I've followed it very closely. I think a name like Mike Ryan comes to idea of one of our first women national coaches for Anson and, and trips to Italy with our women's team. And obviously, just like the men's team when I was with Bob Gansler, there was no budget. We only had a limited amount of money. Limited equipment, limited—you name it—and and and I guess what I what I want to say is, can you go back? Because I know that women's soccer, one of the hotbeds, was the city of Dallas in Colorado and California, where a lot of our players now. We have players from all fifty states, but if you could just talk about how it was for you as a youth player—never mind college—but you starting the game and 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 that pathway for you before you went to UNC
0: yeah so I played for a club called the Denver Bandits in Denver Colorado I was probably 15 when I first joined them it's very common for girls to play up back then and even today uh, many years I played on the team up through the under 19 age group we always went to we always won the state championship we always went to regionals and we lost to some great team from California who you know was led by a a player named Karen Cabrera. So we always lost, but we had some epic games. I think I remember a game where Karen scored three and I scored three, and then we went into PKs. (laughs) Uh, But her team won. Uh, I actually was not recruited to play college soccer. I wrote a couple universities. I actually have a rejection letter, which is funny. They just didn't regard Colorado as a hotbed for soccer. And so I played basketball my first year in college on a college uh, scholarship and uh, still had hoped to play college soccer. That was kind of my dream. Now, Colorado College was on the radar, but it didn't. For me, I wanted to go big, really. I wanted to go to UCF, Central Florida, or North Carolina, because North Carolina was number one in the country the year before I, I went. And Central Florida was number two, and I really wanted to go to the number two country, uh, school in the country to help beat the number one team, but Anson just recruited really well, and so I went sight unseen and went to play at North Carolina, and I can remember my basketball call, uh, coach being really disappointed when I told him I was transferring. He's like, what? You can't, you know, I was getting a lot of playing time as a freshman. And then when I told him I was going to UNC, North Carolina, he's like, you can't play there. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to play soccer. And he's like, what? So, you know, I had gone to a club tournament in the fall of my freshman year before the basketball season started. And somebody saw me play, told Anson, hey, I just saw a player that you might want to recruit. She's similar to the recruits you already have going. And uh, he recruited me sight unseen. And I went to North Carolina sight unseen.
3: Wow! Wow!
2: I I keep hoping for some player like that to fall on my lap. But <laughs> it never happened in forty yeah. years. Yeah. Well, you know, here's here's the question that I sorry, I Ralph.
0: Love. Ralph, can I go back one?
2: Sure, of course.
0: Colorado is one of the hottest of hotbeds today. Right. So we did some analysis, in, I think 2011 or 2012 of our four or five hundred youth national team players, and per capita. And per registered players, the most prolific states we have are Colorado, Maryland, and, and California. Wow, oh, that's a good yeah, Everybody knows that about California, right? It's, right. It's, uh, you know, but per capita, per registered players, Colorado. Look at the U.S. women's national team today. We have four starters, all from Colorado. Yeah. So it wasn't that, of course, years ago. I wouldn't have expected it. In fact, there wasn't even much college soccer being played west of the Mississippi, which is why I knew I wanted to go to North, to the East, to North Carolina or Central Florida.
2: That's true. That is so true. Well, one of the things that I, I, I just recently was doing a, a coaching symposium and I, I like to ask, you know, because of Google, people can get you information much quicker and faster and accurate. So one of the things that we asked the, the coaches was how many, Under 17, under 20, Olympic and World Cups as a United States women's national team won. And when you add all of that success up, I mean, you know, I know on the men's side, everyone always equates it to Brazil because they've won five World Cups. I mean, the women have won four World Cups already, the U.S. since 91. Olympic gold medals once they started the Olympics in 96 for women under 20s once they've started have those we've won those and I know you know that cuz you work for US soccer so I guess my question is to you how can we stay on top and and what are we doing in from your knowledge of to to maintain that uh success both at youth collegiately and now even on the pro game
0: yeah well, I'll start with the youth game. You know, I think uh, U.S. Soccer made an effort to run the girls' development academy, much like the men's academy, which they had run. And uh, the men's academy, I think, was ten plus years old. The women's academy only was in existence, I think, two years. Right. But what, it, while it didn't succeed, um, I think it created a good conversation about what does good youth club soccer look like. What is, you know more? More club directors were attending courses to run clubs. There was a discussion about, you know, how can we get more coaches licensed? You know, let's put them on a pathway to get more coaches licensed. I think those are all good things. Let's get like-minded clubs, like-minded directors, like-minded players competing against more, uh, each other more regularly and regionally because it's so expensive, you know, for girls in this country, between the ages of like 14 to 18, it's 5 to $8,000 a year to play soccer and that doesn't include flights to showcases which they almost all attend 3 to 4 showcases. That doesn't include their parents going to visit them or to watch them play. So it's a very expensive sport now. So I think um, we've had a really strong outlook difficult at times debate about club soccer in America and but I think the club environment was improved from it and i think it'll only continue to improve because people are now more aware of some basic standards we've got to have licensed coaches we can't just have anyone out there coaching we've got to have a pathway for coaches we've got to have um, club director education we've got to have club licensing right and eventually we'll have a tournament and event licensing i think those are all good things that's making us better younger players are developing quicker and faster and more sophisticated the college game is in great shape, uh, as you well know, Ray. We've got, you know, nearly a thousand schools out there offering an opportunity for any player to play at almost any level at any place in America at the collegiate level for those age groups. And I've always said, and I still stay, stay to it. The most professionalized environment we have is the college environment because the coaches uh, are part of a bigger team with an athletic director. There's great facilities. There's support around the players. The medical facilities are sometimes better than anywhere else in America. And the coaches are showing up every day. That's their job. It's not like they're just volunteers showing up between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m., right? So the, cl- the college game's in great shape. Um, not that there aren't some challenges. I know that there are some huge challenges in college soccer. Um, but then in our professional game, it's quite interesting. We just went through COVID. Who would have thought our third league? We've had two failed leagues. They, they, they both lasted three years, and after three years, they failed. There was six years in between them. Now we start our third league, and we're in our 10th, 11th year, I believe. And the, we survived COVID. That league survived COVID. Who would have thought that? So I think our, our women's league's in a really good position. Obviously, we had a very difficult year with some of the abuses that were uncovered. But again, players are continuing to play. Uh, The game, you can see our our national team benefiting from some of the players coming through the NWSL. And to answer your specific question, Ralph, as Europe is exploding in women's soccer, I don't know if you guys caught any of the women's European championships that were just going on for the last three weeks. The money that's being poured into uh, massive male clubs for women's soccer, like Chelsea, like Arsenal, Man United, Man City, and Barcelona, and there'll be other clubs. Germany has always been pretty diverse in their distribution of resources to their clubs, but Bayern Munich is certainly one, Wolfsburg's another one. As money is pouring into the women's game in Europe, and the women's game is thriving, and we've seen from the women's Euro that just ended Sunday that the game's exploding, culturally being more accepted. We've seen Austria perform better. We've seen Sweden perform there's only one way we can continue to compete, and that is these, our pro league has to thrive. We need to have uh, more foreign players coming. We need bigger investors. And a little thing is players are going to self-determine that they're going to skip college. I don't see U.S. soccer making it a policy. We never made it a policy. We don't tell players what to do, but players are going to say, you know what? In the women's game for the first time, these really talented Trinity Rodman, Ashley Sanchez, Uh, Jaden Shaw, they're all going to, not they're all, the most talented, the top 1% are going to bypass college and they're going to go pro earlier and they're going to get coached by the pros around them so that they don't become complacent for four years because it's easy street. And I think that's a good thing. I'm not saying college isn't good enough for them. I think it is. But I think if we as a country are going to continue to compete with what's happening in Europe, these young players are going to make the difference, and we're going to see it next year. Sophie Smith, uh, Mal Pugh, Lindsey Horan, Trinity Rodman. They are the new generation of players we've got access to and better to have them younger.
3: April, you play. obviously we spoke before you played for Anton Ar- Anton Durant, who's a legend in soccer in this country. Uh, a while back, you were quoted saying that when you left Carolina, you were thinking there was only one way to play and one way to train. Can you talk about after Anson, the different coaching styles that you encountered, the different ways of playing, positive, negative, uh, how it shaped your philosophy?
0: Yeah, so all of us that played for Anson, when we decide to go into coaching, we try to mimic him, because he was such a great role model, and he was such a great, inspiring leader, and then it takes you about a day and a half of coaching to realize you're not Anson Dorrance, you don't speak like Anson Dorrance, you're not as charismatic as Anson Dorrance, you can't captivate the audience the way he does so you quickly try to adapt to your personality and I remember a mentor of mine saying to me uh, one of my first sessions I ever ran public sessions that I ran as a coach he said you're rather modern toned and I was like what's he mean I don't think that's a compliment and so it meant literally I had no personality you know what I mean I didn't know how to express myself. So I tried to, and learned through his mentorship to try to, it opened my mind. It opened my mind that I'm not going to be Anthony Dorrance. So I need to, uh, adapt my style of coaching. So of course I was a very physical coach early on in my career. I demonstrated a lot. i moved around a lot. I was energetic. I was passionate, all of that. And then I went to Italy. I think maybe January after I uh, graduated from college, I went to Italy and I had a mixed experience in Italy. It was, the games were amazing, was top shelf. Uh, the Italian league was the best league in the late 1980s, best league in the world, best players from Holland, uh, England, Sweden, myself, or from America were all playing in Italy. And my team played a four five, one very defensive Catanaccio. <laughs> I never, I've never played on a defensive team in my life. Right. <laughs> and defensive oriented. So you learn a different way. You learn that there's another way to play the game. Uh, you learn that when you're the one, right. Or the nine or the four five, one, you're the, the nine up top and you're very alone. You learn how to connect quickly. Cause otherwise you're just going to be a turnover queen. So that opened my mind. And then in the absence of other mentors, I hired people around me that were what I thought were exceptional. And I don't know if you guys know, but Jill Ellis was actually my assistant at the University of Maryland, the University of Virginia. And yep. ultimately, when I became the U.S. coach, she was my under 20 coach. Well, I, in my early, I think my second year at the University of Maryland, which would have been, you know, four years into coaching, three years into coaching. I had Jill Ellis sitting next to me. Well, she's not going to sit there idly and just go, yeah, whatever you think, coach. Yeah, yeah, whatever you think, coach. She is like pulling on me and pushing on me and challenging me in every way. So having these great assistant coaches like Jill Ellis and Ron Rab and uh, Carrie Sarver next to me, it, you, I know what I know. I know what I think. I want to hear what these people around me think. So I learned at a very young age to surround myself with people that spoke up, had strong opinions, could um, have discourse. And we were just aligned philosophically because Jill and I both worked for her father as young youth coaches. That's, that's how I learned, right? That's how I learned that there's, there's more than one way. It was through experience. You know, you go, uh, one of the benefits of being the national team coach in 2000 is when I wasn't coaching the team, I was going to watch Steve Swanson work because he was my under 16 coach. or jerry smith who was my under 20 coach or chris Petricelli, who was my under 20 coach all those guys randy waldrum um, um eric walsh was my under 17 coach mark kikorian at one point was my under 17 coach so the luxury one of the real luxuries of the job you're going around to watch all these coaches coach right and you're you're getting to see up front some of the best training sessions and those were while i was the national team coach and the same thing happened when i circled back and went back to u.s soccer the second time steve swanson uh, one of the best coaches i've ever seen work with women and just to be next to him um, and watch him coach uh he's for me he's just one of the top coaches in in women's game so that's how i learned that there's not there's not just one way ray it's not it's not necessarily that i didn't i learned that it was only the answer doran's way it's there's so many ways to uh, break down defenses there's so many ways to attack opponents there's so many ways to run training sessions and um, that opening of your mind I think is really healthy and it happened to me really young because I were I realized quickly I was not dancing.
3: Let me ask you this to me you know I remember watching you play to me you were one of the first big time top American female players would you want to share with me who you think the best player we've produced is or three of the best female players the U.S. has produced?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say, uh, of course, my filter is always going to be go back a little bit further, right? But I would say uh, Mia Hamm, Michelle Akers, Carly Lloyd. Yeah, when I look at if I have to get down to three, those are three of the best. And, you know, I once tried to do a starting 11, you know, like, like a media guide might try to do, who would you be? Unfortunately, we had, um, you know, uh, some good goalkeepers over the years. Hope Solo, Bryce Gurick. We've had some great midfielders over the years. We've had some unsung defenders, um, unsung defenders. Carla Overbeck as a leader, one of the best. When you put her leadership and her consistency together. So Brandy Chastain could play really on any line. And she was so technical; she could have played it in any line in almost any generation because she was so technical.
3: Let me ask you: this. you put your coaching hat back on? Yeah. In the end, how good is Trinity Rodman going to be?
0: Depends on Trinity Rodman. Yeah. You know her. Her ceiling is is pretty high. Her athletic qualities. I think she is highly motivated. But what we what we learn is when it's. Easy, you know this Ray, when it's when it's easy for talents, let's call her a talent. They accelerate through the pathway and it's quite easy. Every player finds their threshold where it's not easy anymore. Right. Right. And how do they deal with that? Mal Pugh just went through that. Mallory Pugh was one of the best at 14. She went through she played on a 14 team, skipped up to the under 17 team, skipped the Eighteen and nineteens went straight to our 20s and played in two U20 World Cups. Could have played in a third. She went to our senior women. She had a great year or two, and then she just flattened out.
3: I'll and, tell, you, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. Yep. Must have been, I'm not sure the years, 83, 84, 85. That window, you'll know better when I tell you who it is.
0: Yeah.
3: The, the gentleman I played for Southern Connecticut, Bob the Cranian, and then I coached with, uh, he had a camp called Victory Soccer School of New Milford. It was co-ed. Yeah. So this little young lady used to come in about 11 years old in our league with the 14 year old boys. And back then, you might have 20 girls at camp and 310 boys. And she was the MVP of the league like three years in a row. Christine Lilly. Yeah. And she would just, she would make these guys look like fools. And she was 11, 12 years old, yeah. Left footed on the ball, skinny people. Yeah. And I remember this like it was yesterday. And this had to be, I started coaching, I graduated 82. So it had to be somewhere, 83, 84, 85. Yeah. When, when did she go to Carolina?
0: Uh, so she's about eight years younger than I am. So I'm going to say she was there in the early ni- 91, 1990, 91.
3: 83, eight years. She'd yeah. be about 10, 11 years old. And yeah. That's what she, was yeah. Old. she came in. She was the MVP of the camp three straight years. And we had yeah. some pretty really good. During that period of time, different times, we had Timmy Horton, Lyle Yorks, all these guys in there. I yeah. mean, she would make that. And they were good players. Kevin Pendergast, Chris Brewer went to Wake. Yeah. Uh, we had a good group of guys. And she would just cook these guys up. She would yeah. just cook these guys up. I mean, you know, Ray,
0: it. I was driving maybe two weeks ago from D.C. to Maine to go see a really good friend of mine, national team player friend of mine. And we got on this parkway. And the sign said, Wilton, Connecticut. I was right. like, oh, I'm a Christine Lilly. Like, come on, we all know this,
3: right? We did a day camp so, two yeah. weeks ago at Wilton on the Christine yeah. soccer field.
0: She actually what? would be on the list of my eleven. Yeah.
3: We, yeah. I, I- we tried to do this at Southern Connecticut when I was coaching. Yeah. The paper, the, yeah. the reds asked us to put together an all-time top fifty.
0: Yeah.
3: And we got to like 36 through 91.
0: Yeah.
3: Okay. you couldn't decide it. So we said, no, we're not gonna do it. We're gonna we're gonna send too many and just like you. To name yeah. your top 10, you might yeah. offend 15 others who could well, be in there.
0: <laughs> you're, you're offending some other forwards, but I was like, I'm also offending some people I think really high of in terms of their era. Joy Fawcett was one of the best wing midfielders who became a wing back, right? Like
2: uh-huh.
0: you're yeah. offending, like you gotta put her on the list because you need defenders. So yeah, it's a better exercise, not done.
3: You know what I you know what I <laughs> think it was, you remember this. I don't know if it was the semifinals of the World Cup or the Olympics, and I could be wrong. It was against Brazil, and it was late in the game or extra time, and I believe Rapino took the corner kick. It might have been her first World Cup, and back got up and scored this goal in the air. This is as good as any goal I've ever seen in the world. And, and it was a Sunday morning, and it was a yeah. quarterfinal, semifinal, either the Olympics or the Cup. What an unbelievable goal she scored. What well, an I- unbelievable
0: actually- if you said to me, "What is my favorite U.S. Women's National Team moment that doesn't include me?" <laughs> right, yeah. like, because I often get asked, "What's your greatest moment?" My moment is that moment. It was actually through the run of play, Ray. If we're it talking worked. about if, so, if we're talking about the same play, oh, we were down a late goal
3: in game, late, late in the game.
0: Oh, 122nd minute, latest goal ever scored scored in a Women's World Cup game because it was like 122. Plus, right.
3: World, it was World Cup or Olympics?
0: It was World Cup quarterfinals. We were down a player and down a goal against Brazil. We got the ball in our own defensive near our own defensive corner corner uh, flag. Rampone plays essentially to Lloyd. Lloyd plays it wide to Rapino, who's just crossing the midstripe. Rapino flings it in from just past the midstripe. Wombat goes up in the face of you know two fists coming at her, and she scores. For me, that is the greatest moment ever in the history of the US women. Uh, the greatest, yeah. Two thousand eleven quarterfinals. You know, there's the next year we had an amazing comeback against Canada in the Olympics that was, you know, it's like they scored, then we scored, then they scored, then we scored. And I'm like, you don't you come back once. If you're the US, you can come back twice. Can you come back three times? And we did. Uh, but not the same moment for me because it didn't have the drama of being down a goal, down a man. Right. Right. Yeah.
3: Who had the team in 11? You? you? No.
0: No. Uh, Pia Sundho. Pia.
3: 2011
0: was that year. Yeah.
3: Th- thanks coach. Thank you very
2: much.
0: Yeah. That was amazing.
2: Well, I, I think first of all, it's 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 amazing what our women's soccer players have accomplished at all levels, whether it be youth internationally and meaning in the Olympic Games as well as World Cups and talking about some of these things you're just talking about right now, phenomenal. And, you know, to go back to what you were just saying earlier, is something that I said the other day about Tab Ramos, that, um, you know, Karen Jennings' ability to dribble and people on the run of play on her dribbling skills. And I've, obviously you've said you competed against her many times in club soccer. She went to UC Santa Barbara. You went to UNC. Um, But for me, you know, it's just like you mentioned Joy Foster real quickly there. There's some players that, unfortunately, this youth group has not seen, which would be worthy to see, just like Overbeck and her leadership and her skills in the back. So we've we've got a FIFA all-star group of players. Players have got over 300 caps uh, it's it's such a wealth. But I guess what I want to say to you, April, is that, you know, whether whatever, how you want to call it, a pioneer, uh, an initial person who got this thing going, the ball rolling, we're indebted to your work. <laughs> Claire, we're indebted to yours, your ability to be a leader of the sport. Now You mentioned, and I know you're a very humble lady, but, you know, you mentioned about that coaching tree, you know, like a Jill Ellis who... I think the world of, and I think phenomenal work to win two World Cups. To win one is phenomenal, but to do back-to-back. And all those people, Swanson you are mentioning, and all these coaches that you said you got to see work, that all started and and was shared. And I I really believe that in the women's side of the game, I think there's a real strong camaraderie that I was able to witness in my years with U.S. soccer, up close and personal. But I, I just want to say, and all sincerely, that to our listeners, that uh, thank you for all that hard work that you put in and still do. It's a, it's a real challenge, as you mentioned, going forward to stay on top because you, you got to experience that at UNC. Everybody was after you guys because you were winning championships all the time. But uh, I, I'm excited uh, because we had Amanda Vandervoort on telling us about the pathway with. USL with women's sure. soccer going forward in the immediate future. So uh, it, it's fantastic. And, uh, and Ray and I really appreciate that uh, you've uh, been able to come on. So what I'd like to ask you as my final question for our listeners. It's important that we, we, we want to stay connected. We want to help each other. So how, how can our listeners stay connected to anything that you're doing and what you're doing in the game at the present time?
1: Hmm. Well,
0: I'm working for FIFA about three and a half years now. I'm a consultant. I've been doing uh, consulting work for about 15 years for them. So talk about being the luckiest person, you know, you know, I came through early in our pipe in our in our process as a player and as a coach. Um, you know, my my pathway was pretty quick. And um feel very lucky about that. And I uh, worked for U.S. Soccer and our Olympic Committee, and now I'm working for FIFA. And, you know, the work I'm doing is engaging, but it's it, trying to build the game outside the superpowers. So um, I work with several countries to help build their men's and women's game and their pathway, their talent pathway. Hard, hard to follow it because it's out of country. But um, I think some of the work that FIFA is starting to do for countries is uh, pretty remarkable. And we're assembling a team of experts at about 30 of us now that travel around the world and say, okay, Hey, Turks and Caicos, how can we help you develop your pathway, your coaching pathway, your player pathway, your referee pathway? How do we de- uh, develop the game in, you know, and some of your challenges and it's really tailor-made it's specific for each country. So um, that's what I'm doing right now. I'll do it. It's not work. <laughs> it's, you know, like, like you guys, it's what you love, what we love to do. So I feel lucky to do it. I'll keep doing it uh, for a while longer. Hopefully what we see is countries emerging that can compete with the U S that can compete. You know, if Mexico gets better, it makes the United States better. Canada, we saw just won the Olympic gold medal. That, that uh, victory was amazing and it's wonderful that they won the Olympic gold medal. It makes us think more, makes us evaluate more. So we really want to be, uh, as you guys know, through the United Soccer Coaches Association and all the work you've done in coaching education. If we can raise the game one place, it raises the game in other places. So that's what I hope to do for the next couple of years.
3: April, thank you. You did so much for the sport. As you said earlier on in our broadcast, when you weren't, when U.S. soccer wasn't chartering, when U.S. soccer wasn't bringing chefs on the trip with them. When Nike wasn't supporting us, and you know, and then you, and then let's be honest, the uh, the whole gender situation was an easy path for the women, like as easy as the men's was. And you guys fought, and, and you put you put U.S. soccer on the map. So I thank you for that. I want to steal something from Michael K, the Yankee broadcaster. You're in a foxhole. You have one person with you. Who is it?
0: Is the foxhole a soccer foxhole?
3: Nope. It's a foxhole. Life and death.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm going to bring three people with me, Ray. I'm going to bring two former national team player teammates, Tracy Bates-Leon and Megan McCarthy. And I'm going to bring my partner, Yika Klimkawa. So.
3: Fantastic. Bringing All question. three of them. Last question. Best teammate ever. Not best player, best teammate ever.
0: Tracy Leon. Tracy Bates-Leon. Amazing. Amazing teammate. Amazing work rate, she made me work hard in the 80s. <laughs> we trained together all the time. Uh, she made me better, we, we pushed each other, and uh, we laughed all along the way.
3: Thank you for taking time from the Carolina Beach today to be with us and our listeners.
0: All right, thank you so much, Ray and Ralph. It's fantastic to speak with both of you and see your smiling faces and the work you're doing. Keep the game alive.
1: Thanks for listening to For the Love of the Game with Ralph and Ray. Be sure to leave us a review and follow this podcast on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk with you next time.